Hey everyone and welcome to episode 101 of Morgan Webster's Wrestling Friends. As always, I'm the undisputed king of the mods, or the podfather of professional wrestling, Flash Morgan Webster. Or more importantly than that, for the next 45 minutes to the hour, to hour and a half, however long this conversation with the wonderful Alex Shelley goes this week, I will be your host. Or as I like to see it, facilitator for all these chats, discussions, gatherings. Oh, I love that word, gatherings. With your wrestling favourites, or as I like to call them, my wrestling friends. This podcast, of course, comes to you free charge every Wednesday, back to a Wednesday. It was a Monday last week, but I did say that was a one-off because it was a 100 episode. And of course, we did have a bank holiday weekend and I thought, you know, I'll treat you, drop it on the Monday. But yeah, we are back to the Wednesday. And this podcast does come to you free of charge every Wednesday on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Podcast Addict, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast from. Please be sure to rate, subscribe, review. I'll tell you what, over the next couple of weeks, uh, two or three weeks, um, if you leave a review, give me a five-star rating, cheeky little Meltzer, five-star rating on the iTunes, then uh, I'll I'll have a look through the ones, I'll randomly generate it, and I'll send one of you out some uh, lovely bundles of stuff. I've got signed pictures, I've got stickers, I've got, see if I've got some t-shirts in your sizes as well, and uh, I'll try to send that out to you. So yeah, definitely go and do that. So jump over to iTunes. Leave me a cheeky little uh, five-star rating, review, tell me how much you love this. And uh, everyone who does that over the course of the next, the same month, let's give you a month to do that. Next four episodes, next pe- next uh, next four weeks, the people who do that will be entered into a competition to win free stuff. Again, take you a couple seconds to do it. I'm not asking you to do anything else. Uh, but if, if you are uh, not asking you to put any money in or buy anything or purchase anything, just a little bit of your time, give me a five-star rating and I will chuck you in to win some free stuff. That sounds pretty good. So yeah. Please rate, subscribe, review on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, Podcast Addict, SoundCloud, wherever you get your podcast from. And uh, be entered into this month's draw. Really, really appreciate that. Um, as I think I said a couple months back, um, no sponsors at the moment. Uh, again, if you do want to sponsor the podcast, please drop me an email. That'd be absolutely great. But I understand times are hard, very hard at the moment for a lot of people. I'm not asking you guys to uh, support me. I'm not asking you to do anything like that. Just give me your time. If you do want to uh, kind of tell me how much you enjoyed the podcast, please do that on all social medias, which is uh, Twitter. I'm at Flash underscore Morgan on the Twitter. Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Flash Morgan Webster on the Facebook. I am at Flash Morgan Webster on the Instagram. And if you want to send me a cheeky little email and let me know how much you're enjoying the show, maybe you've got a podcast and want me to come on it. Hey, Got nothing else to do at the moment. I'd love to talk about myself. Great, let's do it. <laughs> then uh, the email is flashmorganatlive.co.uk. Of course, um, I do get a lot of emails, um, so apologies if you have sent me one. And sometimes they end up my spam. I don't see them for weeks and weeks and weeks. So apologies if I do not reply to you. Um, at first, I will try to get around to everybody. Um, I had some lovely emails last week uh, about the Edge podcast, so really appreciate that. And yeah, if you want to drop me an email, please flashmorganatlive.co.uk. Yeah, a uh, big thanks to anyone who was a new listener last week, so the numbers did go up, of course, because we did have Edge on the show, and uh, hopefully, when I look at the numbers for this week's podcast, they've stayed relatively the same. So I'm hoping that Edge is, you've come for Edge, you've stayed now for other people, and you uh, are ready to sit down and listen to this week's podcast with the wonderful Alex Shelley. So yeah, got to sit down with Alex, got to have a little bit of a chat with him, uh, was lucky enough to meet him uh, over at NXT when we did the Dusty Roads uh, tag Team Classic. Unfortunately, Grizzly and Veterans got to wrestle them. Ugh. But uh, yeah, did got to uh, got to sit and chat with him, talk about music, talk about loads of stuff. 
and uh, it was really good to finally sit down and have a proper chat with him. We've uh, kind of been following each other on social media for a while, you know, DMing back and forth, but uh, it was really good to meet him at the beginning of this year, and it was really nice to uh, sit down and chat. And I did say after the podcast that, again, it was a real easy podcast. Again, really just kind of rolled off the tongue. It was uh, real easy, not a lot of editing needed to do, and it was uh, hour and a half really did fly by. So, uh, yeah, you're going to sit down and enjoy a wonderful podcast. It really is a full retrospect of his career. We do talk about getting started. We talk about CCW. We talk about Generation Next, which is a big part of my childhood. We talk about um, him going out to uh, Zero One. We talk about uh, the IWGP uh, and New Japan. We talk about TNA. We talk about Motor City Machine Guns, of course. We talk about Time Splitters. We talk about his retirement or lack of retirement, because he says he never technically used that word, and then we do, of course, round up and talk about his return, and there is a lovely exclusive in there as well, so uh, definitely keep your ears peeled for that. Um, Yeah, again, big thanks for anyone who's joined the podcast from last week, Uh, big thanks if you've been here since day one, and big thanks if you are joining me this week because you love Alex Shelley as much as I love Alex Shelley. I guess that sums everything up. I hope everyone is staying safe, I hope you're all staying indoors, and I hope that uh, this is over sooner rather than later. But uh, as long as this goes on, allow me to uh, allow me to distract you for a, an hour, hour and a half, however long this conversation goes, with the wonderful Alex Shelley. Enjoy, people. So, what have, uh, what were you, what were you doing this morning? All right. So, like, uh, I went and worked out, and my hours are reduced in my clinic, so I'm still working. I'm still working in physical therapy, and. Uh, the hours are quite reduced. And it's interesting, too, because physical therapy, as I mentioned before, it kind of falls more into the ancillary part of medicine currently, at least. Like, it's not a total necessity, but at the same time, you can't have these people living in pain. And it's a predicament over here because elective surgeries are put on hold. So more or less, if it's life-threatening or orthopedically urgent like if you break your arm and it's hanging off by a thread yeah they're going to do surgery and fix it but at the same time if you have a torn acl and you've had it for six months they're not going to do surgery and we have a lot of patients on caseload currently who are coming in and they're in pain like they need to come in and get some relief for that so they can move about their daily lives normally also there's a handful of people who don't want to inhibit their progress like we'll say a rotator cuff repair which typically takes several months to heal well you know they're out of the acute stage and now they're moving around strengthening it but at the same time if they don't keep coming then they're going to lose all their gains and it could ruin a surgeon's hard work so it's a real balancing act in physical therapy currently um the hours are reduced at the clinic but that's more so because again we're not getting elective surgeries and a lot of people are scared to come in too a lot of people are worried that they are going to get sick just by looking at people the wrong way the other side of the spectrum is also that we have a lot of patients who don't care um, not that they're not worried about getting sick, but they understand that the risk doesn't necessarily outweigh the benefits and they've kind of waited in their own mind. Well, I'm going to continue to come to therapy. So that's kind of how it's working right now. Yeah. I, yeah. I totally, I totally get what you mean. So, um, yeah, um, just to kind of fill everyone in, uh, my guest today, of course, is, uh, Alex Shelley. Uh, really do appreciate you coming on the, on the show and, uh, finally getting to chat because we have been trying to sort this out for a couple of weeks. Oh, yeah, man. I, I truly appreciate you having me. Thanks for making time. Yeah. Um, so how I usually like to start these off then is um, what's your earliest memory of wrestling or when can you remember falling in love with wrestling? Sometimes that's like two questions in itself. So, yeah, what's your earliest memory of wrestling and when can you remember falling in love with it? 
Yeah, and they are different answers too. You know, as a kid in the U.S., pro wrestling is a bit of Americana, and uh, the WWF in the '80s was obviously all over the place. I remember getting like the ice cream bars when the truck would come by, watching it on TV, but just sporadically. Um, never really being heavily invested into it until I was probably like 10 or 11. And I remember some kids in my class had some wrestling magazines. And I remember the thing that caught me off guard, and it sounds so bizarre, was the idea of a finisher. The idea of a finishing move just seems so cool to me, like a specialty, like a knuckleball in pro wrestling terms. And then seeing the costumes and the pictures, and again, this was WWF as well, uh, they were all larger than life. And that just kind of hit accord with me as a child who was very artistically motivated and drew and painted and was into comic books and was into cartoons and was into video games, which isn't abnormal for a 10-year-old boy in the U.S. in the early 90s, not at all. But at the same time, once I saw that, and then you combine it with the fact that there were a couple wrestlers out there at the time, and only a couple, who were highly, highly, highly athletic and acrobatic. When I saw that combination of it all, it kind of clicked. Like, oh, wow, these guys are real-life superheroes. And from that moment on, uh, I was kind of hooked. Was uh, Do you say at the age of 10? Yeah, about the age of 10 or so. And the guys back then that were real athletic, you know, it was your Shawn Michaels, your Owen Hart's. Um, Brian Pillman, I remember seeing Liger for the first time and just thinking, I don't know what I'm looking at. Uh, but there obviously weren't a ton of them. One, two, three, kid, another one. Um, but then again, also the ones that look cool were very appealing too, right? Like your Diesels and your Razor Ramones. I love how you kind of like the ones, the ones you kind of listed then. Like I had Quack on here a couple of weeks ago and he said like he saw Hulk Hogan and everyone was like, you know, it's like superheroes. And he looked at Hulk Hogan and was like, that's not a superhero. It, it, that is not it. And then he said he saw Liger when he saw the Cruiserweights, and that's what grabbed him. So the fact you put like you talked about superheroes and then listed Liger straight away kind of shows the exact same parallels that you guys had. Yeah, very much. Uh, and you know, Mike's a few years older than I am, and uh, obviously came up at a different time in wrestling. But I think if you're a kid who's drawn to certain elements of theater and movies and art then certain characters are probably going to resonate with you a little more. And again, later on, too, I remember seeing somebody like a Jushin Thunderliger uh, wrestle like a Rey Mysterio and seeing like the evolution of the mass characters well and kind of the acrobatics that were uh, being utilized at that point in time, like wrestling, uh, moving into a different realm and that transitional period and just being blown away by that, too. So it, it continued for years and years and years. Uh, at what age then did you kind of think to yourself, right, I want to give this a go? Because you're saying like 10 years old. And I know that some people over here will start quite young, but I know in America you've got to be a lot older. So like how old were you when you thought, OK, I want to give this I want to give this a go? Right. And, you know, I, I would say that you guys are typically in the U.K., um, uh, you're a little younger when you start by and large. Like I've heard of you guys starting as young as like 13, 14, 15, 16. I started at 18, which is considered relatively young over here. I think I was, eight, I was 18. Yeah. Um, I just graduated high school and I would have started younger if I could, but nobody would take you here because, you know, the U S is a very lawsuit happy country. 
And uh, I think probably not long after, I remember getting more and more into it. So, you know, going from 10 to 11 to 12, and then eventually like expanding my scope and realizing there was more wrestling out there than just WWF. Well, along with that came the magazines too. And I remember reading a pro wrestling illustrated and seeing a copy of a book that said how to become a wrestler. And as a kid who was an athlete growing up, uh, I just like sports. Like I didn't quite understand what it was yet. And I remember I had, what, I, I was either 11 or 12, but I had a paper out and I did landscaping and I had my own money. So I bought the book and I remember reading about it and they had a list of wrestling schools. And I actually contacted Al Snow's school in Lima, Ohio, which is only about an hour and a half away from me. And of course they weren't going to take me. <laughs> I wasn't even old enough to drive, but um, I had an uncle who lived not far from the school in Dayton. And uh, I was going to basically go stay with him for a summer and then train at the school if I could have. But of course they didn't let me in the door. You were like, so you were like heavily in, it was literally just, for you then it was just waiting game. You were like, okay, I'm going to wait till I'm 18 and I'm going to become a pro wrestler. Yes, absolutely. And you know, it sounds bizarre too, but like, I don't know if it was because I gave it so much energy in the universe or what, but wrestling got so popular when I was in high school, so popular, you know, Monday night wars, all that. And, um, by the time I graduated high school, like all these kids were saying they were going to be wrestlers. I was like, Oh really? What school are you going to go to? And none of them had any idea about any of it. You know, none of them had really researched it too, but it was kind of the advent of the internet and that information was becoming more readily available. So, uh, yeah, as soon as I graduated when I was 18, my parents were like, well, look, we've always supported you in everything you wanted to try. We just ask that you always finish it, which was always kind of the rule in our house. We could do anything we wanted to. My parents would always support it, whether it was art, music, sports, whatever. You just had to finish it out. So even if it sucked after week one, you were in it for the long haul. They said, uh, as our graduation present to you, we'll pay for you to go to wrestling school. Just find one around here. We'll foot the bill. I was like, all right, this is dope. And <laughs> off I went. So, uh, how did you come to uh, how did you come to the wrestling school you decided? So I guess at this point wrestling would have been real hot, would have been real big. So you would have had like so many to choose from. So how do you uh, how do you pick the one you went to? You know, it, it really truly. Um, again, as you mentioned, wrestling was super hot back then. So geographically speaking, there were schools everywhere. But at the time, there was a resurgence of the NWA, like the NWA was coming back around. So this was like 2001, I think. Um, and they had set up this working agreement with zero one in Japan. And I think Karina was a champion. Now keep in mind too, the WCW and ECW had been bought up by the WWF. So there was literally one big company. TNA wasn't even around yet. And, all these smaller independents, just a smattering of independents. So it was a really weird time in the business for that type of thing. And really, truly, it probably was a period of like very limited growth in terms of guys who were getting in that were different. Like if you weren't what the WWF was looking for at that point in time, you really didn't stand a chance. Um, and the values, of course, would change over the years, too, but I digress. So there was an NWA Great Lakes school in Michigan, and it was about an hour away or so. And it was kind of a smattering of all these different guys who had participated in the NWA Michigan and in Ohio and all that, too. And again, very regional. That's where I ended up going to train. Um, there were probably, oh, like, 
I'd say probably like close to like 20 kids in the class. Uh, we train once a week, um, maybe twice a week, Friday and Saturday. Uh, out in Port Huron, which was like an hour and away over by the Canadian border. Um, and uh, that was pretty much it. And and the trainers, like, I really didn't get a ton out of it aside from basic rudimentary stuff. Um, so for me, like, I trained there for six months or so. At my first match, which I drove like six hours to the northern part of Michigan for, got paid like five bucks, almost spun out on the car ride because it was uh, rotten conditions. And then there were more schools that I realized were closer to Metro Detroit. And I started going to these schools. Uh, there were a handful of them that were quite close, uh, you know, under 10 miles away. And just going there during the week because I, I wanted more training than just Friday and Saturday at the NWA Great Lakes School. So I went and met all these different characters and wrestlers from the Detroit. Detroit uh, independent wrestling scene, which at the time was, was quite strong. Like there were shows every weekend in Michigan, um, usually at least one, if not two or three. So was there anyone from that training school that's still around now or like any of those training schools? Absolutely. I would say the one that's kind of like stood the test of time is probably truth martini. And at that point he was not a, trainer so much as he was a wrestler who just had a lot of knowledge now he actually did get trained by al snow um i don't know if you're familiar with his work he ended up becoming a manager in ring of honor for some years uh he was there for probably like four or five years and he's run a school in detroit for oh man probably like 15 years now and um there was a local independent show that uh, Scott Demore would show up at, and then Scott saw me wrestle and invited me to go train at his school across the border in Canada too. Um, and that was a huge stepping stone for me too. So I got to learn from all these guys who had been around the craft and done different things. And, you know, Scott had been a guy who worked for, uh, ECW, WCW and WWF as well. So that really helped me out quite a bit. And he ended up bringing Joey legend over to Windsor. Um, TNA was around at this point in time. It was 2004. And I learned a ton from Joey legend. Just got to hear all these anecdotes and uh, different stories. And, you know, him and Scott had been all over the world. They'd wrestle in the UK and Germany, um, all these random tours of like South Africa, France. And, you know, to me, those were the guys that had the most experience at the time. So you learn from people on the job and that's how it goes. I, well, I think it's crazy, and we'll get into into this a little, little bit a little bit further on. But I know that um, when one of the wrestlers, Eddie Dennis, he went out to do uh, he trained with Scott Demore at Canam, and at the time when he was out there, Kashida was out there, so Kashida had opted to do his uh, um, his excursion, and he ended up at the pretty much the same school that you end up at. Again, we'll we'll chat about that a bit further. But I think it's crazy how the one place he decides to go is the place that you went and then you guys kind of end up becoming a tag team later on. Insane. Right. And I remember actually, um, what had happened was years later, I would end up going to zero one max. And I wrestled with a guy named Akito Hudaka who became my mentor, one of my mentors. So even when I left zero one, uh, and this was probably like 2006, seven or so like I wasn't touring for them full-time anymore like I had been but I would do the occasional tour and I would still and to this day Hidako is one of my absolute favorite wrestlers I don't watch a lot of modern wrestling to be honest with you but I will watch his work even though he's damn near 50 years old he still works the same way and he's just a genius and he was wrestling this Japanese young lion who worked for Hustle and the young lion was quite small wore black trunks amateur wrestling shoes knee pads and it was Kushida and I saw him in 2007. I thought, wow, this guy's really good, really good. 
And I knew he worked for Hustle. I knew he ended up becoming uh, one of Tajiri's students. But I didn't really see a ton of his work beyond that. And then I remember one day we had a show in Detroit. And uh, I believe it was 2008, maybe 2009, somewhere thereabouts. And Scott had had this relationship with All Japan Pro Wrestling for a little while. Well, Kushida had gone from Hustle, which had closed down and been bought by Zero One anyway, to All Japan. And Kushida made his excursion over to Windsor. And the opening match at that point in time was PV Williams versus Kushida. And I watched it. I was like, wow, I think like that's Kushida. I've seen his work before. He was really good. I'd seen him pop up in Hustle a little bit too. And the match was awesome. I was just absolutely flabbergasted. I'm like, this guy's a machine, you know, because the way somebody works when they start out, obviously, after they're in for a few years, it's going to be quite different, especially when they've been working guys who are really good. And he was working for a major company in all Japan. And I went and talked to him afterwards. And his English has always been pretty good uh, for the most part. So I had no trouble communicating with him. And then obviously, uh, three, four years after that, I went to New Japan and the rest is history. So, yeah, happenstance, right? Yeah, especially now you've said that as well. It just seems like you were always destined to become tag team partners when you think about it that way. So crazy, right? And, you know, he when he ended up going back to Hustle in probably like 2009, 2010, uh, after his excursion, he showed up and he looked like he could have teamed with me and Saban right then and there. Like his gear and his hair and everything was very, very, very similar to us. And to be fair, that's why they are sent on excursion, right? Like that's why people go to new places. It's so you can learn. It's so you can be uncomfortable, but it's so you can have ideas and try new things and borrow from other folks when you come back home too. And I remember thinking like, man, he's really, really good. And I remember one time being at the gym on a TNA house show loop and I had given Okada my iPod to watch matches on. He goes, ah, you watch some of Kushida's matches. Like you have a few of them on here. I think one of them was like uh, Kushida versus Naito. And I was like, yeah. He goes, why? He works just like you. He looks just like you. I was like, well, I think he's good. So it's like, I guess there was a little bit of bias there too, eh? Yeah, we like what we like, don't we? That's it. Yeah, yeah, you kind of gravitate towards people who uh, represent the best in you, I think. I was like, man, Kushida's really good. Just, like, watch myself to some extent with cooler moves, maybe. Yes. Uh, we talk about like and what we like. Um, I don't know if this is true, right, but I did read this uh, maybe a couple of years back. The name Alex Shelley, where does that come from? I want to see if this is true. Yeah, so Alex comes from a clockwork orange. So yep. I was a huge, huge Stanley Kubrick fan and I remember when I needed to pick a wrestling name uh the first name I was given by a promoter so of course that happens quite frequently right and I actually shattered my jaw when I was probably like 10 to 15 matches in or so and I remember recovering from surgery I really couldn't do a whole lot. Like my job at that point in time was landscaping. I had signed up for college um, and I was waiting. So it was on summer break. I was waiting for the next semester to start. Couldn't work. Couldn't go to school. So I spent a lot of my time watching movies. I was watching a ton of Stanley Kubrick movies. I was like, I don't really like this name anyway. And I need to pick something else. And, And I wondered about using something that would be different. And I couldn't use my real name, which is Patrick Martin, because 
And the last name Martin was too close to Martini, which is Truth Martini, as I mentioned before. So I thought, man, I really, really like A Clockwork Orange. Like, I really enjoyed the book at that point. Um, I had done a uh, uh, report on it my uh, uh, final year of high school. We had to do, like, a big, like, 10-page report. I went to this, like, super strict Catholic school where you had to do basically a, like, dissertation at the final of all your written uh, classes. So I did one on A Clockwork Orange, and... I had always been kind of enamored with that. So that's where Alex came from. And at the time, I was listening to the Buzzcocks a lot. And I always, always, always enjoyed uh, Pete Shelley, Peter Shelley, the lead singer guitarist. I always, I always thought the Buzzcocks were really good, like really catchy and ahead of their time, too. So I was like, ah, oh, that's fine. That'll work. And I figured, well, if I don't like it or if something comes up, I'll just change it. I mean, it just never happened. So, Alex Shelley, yeah, that's where it came from. Yeah, that's what I that's what I heard. I wonder if it was true. And I thought to myself, no, I, I'd be honest, though, about the Shelley bit, I was like, yeah, that's got to be true. Because, again, after speaking to you, I know that you're a big music fan. But I was like, I wonder if the Alex bit's true. So I was... Yeah, uh... absolutely. And you know what? It's always interesting to me, too, because, like, you know, as we meet people in the business, too, like, you'll ask these things, you know, like, where'd your ring name come? And oftentimes it's not somebody's real name. And when I tell them the Buzzcocks bit, it's usually like the start of a new friendship if they know who Peter Shelley is, right? Because that means they're into music. Um, I remember that was like the foundation of my friendship with Robbie Brookside when I first met him because he's a huge music fan himself. And it's happened so many times. And if you like a lot of the same music, then you're already friends automatically. It's funny you say that, right? But Robbie is generally Robbie is one of my favorite people, and I was I, I, our friendship has again f uh, built over over music. And he'll come in and he'll be like, "Have you heard of this band?" I'll be like, "This scar random Welsh scar band or whatever," and I'm like, "No, I haven't." And he'll be like, "Have a look," and I'll give it a look or something. Or I'll send him uh, a band that I like. But generally, that's that and old British comedies. That's literally what our friendship is based on. It's, a, it's not a bad foundation for a friendship, man. And Robbie is just like, because he went to all those concerts, right? Like, um, he was able to, like, really, really grow up in a super cool music time period, especially in the UK, where music was like one of the greatest exports at the time. And I really, really love hearing about his stories about going to concerts. You know, he was around for, like, the birth of punk over there and two tone. And like, he's just seen so many cool acts. It's really, really, really cool to hear about like some of the concerts and the experiences. Cause like it really, truly like Detroit is a music hub for sure, but it's, it's very um, encapsulated, right? Like, so like a lot of bands, even to this day, will skip Detroit altogether because it's kind of a, at least at one point in time was considered a dump. Um, so to hear about like some of the stuff that he's seen, man, it's, it's really, really refreshing. And he's just an awesome guy. In my opinion, he's, he's a guy who really truly has helped me out a ton. I've learned so much from him. Um, first time I ever met Robbie, like I was 23 years old and I got brought over to Hanover to work for Ecky Eckstein in the main event of, um, a show on December 23rd. And like, I was a guy who always wanted to travel the world and do what my heroes had done. Once I had learned that like the key to becoming a good wrestler is truly going to all these different geographic regions and to be able to kind of get hot shattered into that experience and be able to go 10 rounds with Robbie Brookside, um, 
at the Christmas Carnival uh, in Hanover. Like my first match in Germany at 23 was just a dream come true. And he's always been one of my favorite people since then. What a, He's just an encyclopedia of wrestling, isn't he? Oh, he is. Yeah. Like, and one of my, one of my favorite, you only have to mention, like you can mention one name to him and then 20 or 30 minutes later, you're still stood there listening to story upon story because he's just got an encyclopedia memory. Yeah, he's he's absolutely incredible. He, I've got to get him on you at some point. He told me a story, uh, told me and Mark a story once about how uh, Dave Grohl was doing something in the UK. This was, I think it was before Nirvana and he needed a place to crash. So he crashed at his mother's house. Wow. Like, that's insane. That is just, <laughs> that's, it's insane, you know? Like, wow. That's just wild. Yeah, he's just got so many cool anecdotes. And, and he's not shy about sharing them. And he's just, you know... He's a guy that I watched growing up too. Like I remember being in high school and junior high and seeing the Liverpool lads, and, and like they were eye catching to me too. They were a good team. Um, so like to be able to meet him later on in life and then wrestle with him, uh, you know, that was a real treat. Just a real treat. We we talk about kind of like they were a good tag and stuff like that. If if we're gonna kind of talk about your stuff. Like I know that you kind of did a little bit of stuff with CZW, and I know IWA Mid South. But for me, being a being somebody who grew up watching you and stuff like that, for me, the first real stuff I saw of you was Generation Next. So, like, how oh, did that come about? Right. So, um, I've been working for Ring of Honor for a little bit, and <clears throat> I started there in two thousand three, um, and I wasn't on every show. And what had happened was there was uh, an issue with one of the owners, Rob Feinstein, and he ended up long story short, getting ousted from the company. And because of the issue at the time, um, TNA ended up pulling a lot of their talent, did not want their talent working there. Well, that was probably a good half of the upper portion of the roster. And, you know, as independent contractors, our hands are really quite tied when it comes to what uh, the person who's paying you the most says to do. We're almost mercs in a sense, right? Like you can't blame somebody for backing off if the person who's paying them more and you have a family to support or you have other um, financial needs that need to be met um, are, are in jeopardy. So they lost a lot of talent, but they had a lot of talent on the upswing. And this was in 2004. And there was still like just so many, so many guys who would go on and become superstars um, out there that were either in training or had just started or we're coming to the shows and watching. And more or less, uh, Gabe was kind of one of the first guys to give me a chance in terms of not just wrestling, because he had already given me a chance there, but actually talking on the stick and being a character. And he put me together with Roderick Strong, who I was already very close friends with, and Aries and Evans, and it just kind of took off from there. So all those guys were good. And if they weren't good, then it would have failed. But they were. And it was kind of an ushering in of new talent. So sometimes that's just how it goes. And that's what Ring of Honor needed at that point in time. They hit the ground running. With that, you saying like, kind of like he was the first one to give you the stick. Is that kind of how you became the leader of the group because of your ability to talk? Like, were you just the best of that bunch being able to talk on the stick? Yeah, we all had very different styles, uh, obviously, in terms of wrestling. We still do to this day. Uh, very, very different styles. So 
I dare I say my style was probably the least flashy out of the bunch. Um, but I was probably the safest bet at that point in time in terms of being somebody who could convey certain talking points on the microphone. You know, I think a lot of people may say that I'm just naturally kind of a at least witty person, if not humorous person. I mean, that's all obviously very subjective, but I'm not terribly dull to speak with. Um, and I think I'm fairly articulate, too. Uh, and I hope that doesn't come across as braggadocious no, at all. No, I, I agree but, with that completely, yeah. Yeah, thank you. Um, so it, it was definitely like something that was going to be most likely to succeed for that particular event. And the first event was paramount in terms of success. Now, the other guys can talk too. Of course they can. And they've proven that over the years too. But at that point in time, uh, you just go with the one that's probably going to be a surefire hit. That's all. Well, you talk about kind of like you being the one with the style that was probably the the least flashiest. So it kind of made sense, again, to make you stand out would be the one that you give you the stick to talk. But like, so where does that love of, of pure wrestling and um, Matt wrestling come from because like again uh, I had a, we used to backyard and and like we we loved Generation Next I think we did I think we even had a group that was called Next Generation or something in the backyard but we had a mate who was like my mate Adam absolutely loved you and I remember us just watching you wrestle for ages and us trying to like copy all the technical stuff that you did so where did that love come from I don't know like, and I know that's not the answer you're looking for, but it's interesting to me, um, you know, every kid who ends up being a fan of pro wrestling and then becoming a wrestler at some point in time is going to go out in their backyard or a park and mimic what they see. And that's inevitable. So for me, I was a decent little amateur wrestler when I was growing up. And I remember the first time I saw somebody really utilized like a lot of different holds was in the 1995 Jacob and they had Dos Cross in there. And I remember him just doing all these weird tripped out submissions and thinking like, who is this gentleman who's clearly older wearing a luchador mask, just doing all these bizarre holds. And then of course, you know, like you see that and it's like, okay, that's interesting. That's compelling. I'm drawn to that to some extent, but I was still very much enamored by like your more athletic um, high flying wrestling. But then Dean Malenko came around and I remember seeing him do things and just like, like, man, that looks like it really, like it really hurts. And again, still like, I was still amazed by like great Sasuke. Right. But more and more, I'm starting to see these guys who are doing these like locks and these keys and these counters. And I'm kind of drawn to them a little bit too. And then I remember watching, um, like a good amount of Michinoku Pro. Like I was very obsessed with Michinoku Pro for a period of time after they had shown up in ECW. And I just kind of went real deep into their history. And I thought they were just the coolest. And then I saw guys in battle arts and I saw like your Shofunakis and your men's tails. And then eventually like your Minoru Tanaka's and your Daisuke Akeda's and Hidaka way before I ever met him. And I just remember thinking like some of the stuff they're doing is really, really cool. Like I remember the first time I saw Sean capture and I was like, wow, that was just so unbelievable. So you would always get that influence from some of the top junior heavyweights at the time too, which again, like by that point I kind of skirted off American wrestling. I was more obsessed with the international Japanese and Mexican stuff. And I always just thought that was just cool stuff. But when I came into wrestling, and especially as I came into IWA Mid-South 
specifically, and I went to DeMora school specifically, you had to be able to wrestle. Like if you did not do your fundamentals and your basics well, then you weren't allowed, quote unquote, to do more. And it was very much like a Japanese style system. Like you were frowned upon if you couldn't actually wrestle. Like you had to be able to walk before you could run. And if you were just a guy who relied on pure athleticism, that's fine. But you're going to get outed and you're going to be looked down upon. Whereas if you were trying to impress a guy like, say, Tracy Smothers or an Ian Rotten or even your heroes, Punk's Cabanas, like if you could actually – wrestle on the mat and make it look good and make it look smooth and make it look like you were hurting and you knew your counters and you knew how to apply pressure and kind of shoot a bit and hook a little bit, then you really had a lot of respect from them. So I really, really went deep towards that side of things and less so the athletic style of wrestling when I started out. Well, you talk about kind of falling in love with Japanese wrestling and kind of being pushed towards that. And you did speak about zero one. Like how did, how did Japan even come about? Cause I guess early two thousands, it would have been a lot more difficult then to kind of get your foot in the door in Japan rather than like, you know, how accessible it is with the internet now and kind of stuff being able to be shown and seen before you get over there. Like, how did that come about? Right. Um, you're absolutely correct. Like, when I first started going to Japan, it was still, um, not say that it's on an honor now or not that it's not an accomplishment now because it most certainly is. Oh, but, definitely. uh, yeah, but back then it was it was a little more challenging. So what had happened was um, I had gone to Japan for this company called WrestleAid Project, which was basically a very, very, very small independent company run by a guy named Ryuma Go, who was a bit of a character in the Japanese wrestling landscape himself. But he ran Cork and Hall. And the first time I went there, I was in the main event against P.D. Williams, and I was so excited. And this company was bringing me over. And Joey Legend was, as he often does, um, the star of this random tour. Like, he gets these bookings in just the most bizarre places, but he loves to travel, so he's eager to take them. And I think on this tour, it was uh, me, Petey, uh, Jack, Teddy, Joey Legend, um, Cannonball Grizzly, uh, maybe Joe Kimball, Paul Burchell. It was where I met him for the first time. Um, so, you know, like they, they ended up using guys who were quite good. And then on the Japanese side, later on, they would use like, I think they used Grand Hamada and Dick Togo and Fujita Hidaka. They, they had access to good guys. Um, trying to think of anybody else who's like real notable. Takashi Sasaki, who's like a deathmatch guy, who's, who's quite good. And I ended up becoming good friends with, he was there as well. So, um, Corkin holds maybe 2000 people, say, give or take. And this particular night, it probably held like 200. Uh, so it was like a pretty empty Corican. So it wasn't exactly like the Tokyo Dome my first time out or anything like that. But it was an accomplishment for me. So I had that match under my belt and it went well enough. And I remember probably six months after that, because I was in TNA at this point in 2004, uh, the bookers changed and they were going to run with a different crew of guys as a top exhibition guys. And at that point they wanted to keep me under contract. But to me, that seemed like a waste of time. Like I'm going to be under contract. Um, you really didn't work for ring of honor and TNA at that point yet. Um, I felt like I would be wasting my time if I just sat there and didn't do anything. So I asked for my release and I got it. And I ended up contacting Brian Kendrick, 
who I had met a handful of times at Ring of Honor and um, uh, TNA. They actually brought him in for a minute. So I contacted him and said, I hate to bother you, sir, but I would very much like any information you can give me in terms of getting over to Japan because he's done it, right? Like he's been there multiple times at that point. By that point, he had gone over, uh, left zero one, gone to WWE, left WWE, gone back to zero one. And it wasn't necessarily me asking him like, please help me get zero one or anything like that. Just please give me your expertise, sir. And he wasn't the only person I reached out to. I reached out to Chris Daniels and Duo Brown as well for their respective companies, which were um, New Japan and All Japan too. Like anybody who would give me any information, I'd be happy to do whatever they told me to do. So Stanky told me, I'll tell you what, uh, make a resume, get some pictures, professional pictures, get a highlight video, and send me two matches. And I did all of it. Um, It took me a while, but I did all of it. And he watched it, and he goes, this is really good. Um, I'm going to bring it over. I can't guarantee anything. Well, it just so happened that at that point in time, I literally had – a CZW main event against Sanjay, who was in Zero One, and a Ring of Honor match, singles match, against Spanky himself, too. And he was really happy with the match, uh, which obviously helped my cause a little bit. So they ended up calling me when I was backstage at a CZW show. Uh, Carino called me, I remember, and he said, we'd like to have you booked for the Zero One tour in March, and uh, it'll be these dates. And call me back to let you know you got this. And I was so happy. I was just so happy. Um, So I ended up going over there. And I found out later on, because I had stayed in contact with Spanky as well, that I was the only foreigner he's ever brought a package over for. So I didn't realize that until later on. But, like, pressure was on, you know. My (laughs) first – yeah, I know, right? And this is a guy I looked up to massively, too. And I'd watched so many of his matches. And he really was an influence on me as well, because I viewed him as kind of a modern-day Shawn Michaels. Um, so I ended up going over for Wrestle Project. They brought me over again, and then I stayed there for Zero One. And I was supposed to be in a tag match, my first Zero One show at Corican, uh a full Corican, I might add, against... Hidaka and Fujita, it was supposed to be C.W. Anderson and I. So I get to the show that day, and I'm really excited. I've been watching their matches. You know, I kind of knew what they did. Um, Had um, some ideas in terms of, like, what I wanted to do or how I would counter things or what sort of techniques would work or whatever. And they said, oh, by the way, you're not going to be in that match. You're going to be in the main event. And it's going to be you and Masato Tanaka against Dick Togo and Sanjay Dutt in a TLC match. And my head just spun. I was like, oh, man, like this is I had never done a ladder match or anything up until that point. So it was uh, quite the shock there. And you just do the best you can. right? Like wrestling, again, you're going to be put in these situations if you're in it long enough. And I wasn't even in it that long, to be honest. But. I got through it, and for the rest of the tour, what had happened was the next show we had was in a country town in Guma, and uh, Hidaka asked Spanky to chain wrestle with him before the show. And Spanky said, well, you know, uh, Alex Shelley's actually quite good at chain wrestling. You should probably try rolling around with him, see how you like it. And we went there, and for the show, we chain wrestled for about a half hour or so. Just no talking, nothing, just, just pure grappling. And Little by little, 
eventually people started coming up to the ring apron and stretching and just watching and watching and watching. And I didn't realize that at the time until I got out, but Carino pulled me aside. He goes, hey, just so you know, everybody came up and watched, including all the senpais, too, Otani and Tanaka and Omori. Go do that before every show if Hidak is willing to grapple with you and spar with you. And I did. And that was one of the ways I ended up getting my job over there. So that was in 2005. Um, and probably for the next year, year and a half, I was on pretty much every tour. And I was eventually Sanjay and Spanky left. And um, Spanky went back to WWE. Sanjay got hurt. Uh, but I was one of the foreigners who was on every tour for, for quite a while, probably um, probably a year. How did you uh, how do you find adapting to life over in in Japan? Um, you know, it wasn't too bad for me because, like, I had a unique experience in the sense that I got brought over as something past a young boy. So I never had to stay in the dojo, but I wasn't I wasn't a superstar either by any means. But at the same time, um, Zero One helped get my foot back in the door with TNA to a point. Like I went over to Zero One and I kind of decided like this is where I'm going to gain the most in terms of wrestling experience and figuring out what I want to do, how I want to wrestle and how I want to present myself. And I did. And I did it really fast, too. And a lot of it was due to the influence over there. So within about, uh, I'd say, three or four months, I was back in TNA. And I would do the TNA tapings every week and then go on tour as well. Um, and then back TNA, so on and so forth. So I never had something like, like I've talked to Pete Dunn, for example, before about like living in the Michinoku Pro Dojo. I never did that. I was always in a hotel in Tokyo and then I would do like a proper touring schedule and then go back to the States. I loved it. So Again, you know, I, I may have had it easier or maybe not as easy, depending on what your perspective is. But my experience then and there, I mean, that was when I loved wrestling, like at an apex, I think. That may have been the most fun I ever had in my career, especially because I'm wrestling these guys who I grew up watching, but I'm wrestling them like every night, too. And um, that was just incredible to me. And then on my off days, I go train at the Zero One Dojo, too. And like help teach classes because they would ask me to show my techniques too. And that's all like looking back on it now, especially that's pretty incredible for somebody who was like three or four years in the business, you know, three years in three and a half years in. So I, I really, really enjoyed it. And it was very much like a honeymoon period in terms of um, being in Japan and just a culture shock as well. And we didn't have things like Google translate either. You know, I didn't have a phone with, um, Wi-Fi over there or anything like that. Like I still had to get calling cards not to date myself to like talk to family, friends, girlfriend back home. So I was very much like on my own and very much like in it. You know, you couldn't, you couldn't really get out. There was no like escape or anything like that. And uh, yeah, it was just like me and my, my iPod a lot of times and like being at the mercy of the rest of the zero one roster. So that's it. You kind of talk about like, kind of like that being one of your best, you know, favorite times in wrestling. Do you ever just kind of look back at stuff like that? Because wrestling so goal goal oriented that sometimes you're like kind of you're always looking for the next thing, or you okay, you're looking to do this, or you're looking to do that. And sometimes you kind of like you look back on on periods and think like, wow, I didn't even realize that that was like one of my favorite times ever because I was like too busy trying to look for what the next thing was. Definitely, definitely, and I think that's human nature in life. 
You know what I mean? Like I, I, I've talked to people in the medical field too, who, um, you know, their residency is so hard. They're treated like such shit, but man, it was one of the greatest periods of my life. And I think that's really kind of just human nature to the point where like, we want more. If you're somebody who's goal oriented and if you're an A type personality, especially like you're going to be one of those people who wants to do more and wants to like continue to advance and maybe being in motion makes you feel better. I'm a, I've definitely turned into the type of person who has like trouble relaxing. Um, like I like to fill my days up. That makes me feel good. And then it was kind of the same because I still felt like I was progressing, like all my energy at that point. And mind you, I'm like 22 years old at that point as well. I was quite young. Um, but all my energy was focused on wrestling and advancing in wrestling and getting better. And what are the markers at this point that, that I can say, okay, here's my growth. Like where was I a year ago versus where I am now? And obviously um, I was making more money. I had had more matches. I was wrestling better people. I was in new country. So these were all positive things from that vantage point too. Um, it's, I was fortunate enough in Japan, I think, to be like by myself and isolated and not in a bad way either, but to the point where I had no choice but to self-reflect. And I think that's kind of one of the things like to relate it to what's going on now in the world. Like a lot of people are freaking out at this point in time, I think, because they're left alone with their thoughts. Like a lot of the things that they would use as distractions are taken away and they have to kind of reflect on things in their own life. And that could be good or bad. I'm not saying that that's a bad thing by any stretch of the imagination. Like for guys like us, I think, you know, it, it's, it's a good time to rest and recharge, you know, because wrestling can be a lot at times, especially the travel. But um, the general public, I, I think, you know, if you're somebody who, say, is in an unhappy marriage um, or isn't content with their job or uh, whatever your gripe may be, like you, you kind of have to live with it right now. And at that point in time, I was able to live with my situation and think, wow, this is really cool. Like this is this is what I dreamed of doing in large part. And um, I appreciated it then now. Uh, probably the same amount that I do looking back on it. Like that was one of the few times I think in wrestling where it was like, I wasn't, I wasn't distracted by something else. Well, later on in my career, that wouldn't be the case. You know, later on in my career, I would think about things like I need to do this in order to um, have a contingency plan. that wasn't focused as much as I should have been on the moment. So, but yeah, at that point in zero one, like I really, really, truly loved and enjoyed everything and every minute of it. I really did. You kind of talk about like, kind of like that's, you're doing your dream and that's what you've always wanted to do. Like, and we talk about wrestling and we talk about the pure wrestling and kind of being more of a, a map based wrestler. One of the things I feel that's defined you in your career, which we haven't really touched on really at all is tag team wrestling. Now, like when you talk about some of the, the greatest tag teams in the last 15 years or whatever, then we can literally, we can list two straight away that contain yourself. But like was tag team wrestling always something that you were, were a big fan of or was it something you consciously thought okay I'm going to become a tag team wrestler and then you kind of concentrated on looking at that and kind of studying it more or yeah but how did how did that come about how did like the guns come about and stuff like that um as far as the machine guns and how we came about like it all goes back to Japan and that's kind of a central theme for my career I feel in a lot of ways um so again I kind of highlighted my first tour was zero one and my rivalry with Hidaka. And at the end of the tour, we went back to Corican. 
So there was a set of junior heavyweight tag team titles back before that was super popular. And the champions at the time were Spanky and Kaz Hayashi. And the title match at Corican was supposed to be Spanky and Kaz against Hidaka and Fujita, which is somewhat ironic because Kaz Hayashi has been literally one of my favorite wrestlers since I was about 12. And again, me being Spanky's, I don't want to say young boy, but I, I don't, his apprentice at that point in time, and going to him for advice mostly after everything, um, as we all should, right? Like you go to the people who've been on the job, as I mentioned before. Um, they decided, okay, Kaz can't make this show because he had to go do some All Japan work at that point in time. Somebody got injured, he had to fill in. We'll put Alex Shelley in there and he'll team with Spanky against Hidaka and Fujita. And we did that. We had a very strong match, but yeah, we lost. And they became the new champions. That's match number one. Later on that summer, they decided to have me and Sanjay Dutt challenge Hidaka and Fujita for the tag titles. So we challenged, we lost. Match number three came around, and I remember the office asking me, Shelly, who would you want as your tag team partner if you were to challenge Hidaka and Fujita again? And Chris Saban and I had trained together. We're from the same area. He, Petey Williams, and I are all very, very, very close. We were all the more guys, and we were all in TNA together, so on and so forth. So eventually in 2006, they had this junior heavyweight tournament called the Tekaichi, and it went from like a round-robin type thing to like a single elimination tournament, and they wanted to bring Saban over for it. And regardless of if he won the tournament or not, we were going to challenge Hidaka and Fujita for these belts at Corican. And we did. We had never teamed together, and we beat them. And that was the birth of the machine guns. We took those belts back to the U.S., and we defended them in PWG, and we defended them in Canada at a company called UWA. And that was how we started teaming together. Instant chemistry, or was it something you had to work on? Because, again, even though I know you say that you're, you're close friends and you kind of train together, I know being in a tag team myself, like some people, and I've been in a few tag teams, some people you instantly click with. Like me and Mark Andrews, like – in the ring, we kind of get each other and we're very similar. And we, we, um, when, when it comes to structuring and planning stuff, we all, have, we kind of have the same thoughts and it flows and we kind of get it. But like, I know some people have to work at that and, and it's, it can be difficult. And some people you don't gel with and some people it comes over time. So was it instant or was it something you had to work at? Yeah, first of all, I would love to wrestle you guys, man. So, book it, um, man. Let's do it. Somebody out there, let's do it. The world's not crazy. I'd love that match. Let's do it. That would be so awesome. It would be so awesome. Um, it was instant. And the reason it was instant was because we had trained together for so long. It wasn't a thrown together tag team, even though it was a thrown together tag team, if that makes sense. We had been training partners for so, so, so long um, that we had the same thoughts on wrestling because we came from the same school. So literally the same school of thoughts. We had the same type of build and athletic ability Um for the most part, Saban was probably a little more athletic than I was in certain instances. Like, his first step as an athlete was just phenomenal. He was just so, so, so quick. Um, and I developed quickness over time. You can develop athleticism over time. But he just had it innately. And uh, I don't remember any point where, like, there's anything but growth. Like, every match, we felt like we were getting better and better and better and better as a team. To the point where we progressed like quite quickly. 
Um, and I don't ever think there was any sort of hiccup. Like even to this day, we've not argued like over any sort of ebb and flow or ideas or anything like that. Just very much on the same page. Um, and he's one of my best friends and I love him dearly. That's, that's great. That's great. So like you kind of, you said you took the belts and you went to Peter Ruggi. Who do you defend the belts against? Can you remember on that run when you were on the Indies? Yeah. Yeah. We had a few matches there. Um, we weren't always in straight tag team matches when we appeared as champions there, but we, uh, I remember Super Dragon was the first one to encourage us to team together there and bring the belts. So a lot of credit goes to him as well as the Zero One Office. Um, the first match we had there was against uh, Cape Fear. It was El Generico and Quicksilver. It was the very first PWG show in Reseda at the Hall, the very first one. Um. We also defended against Scott Lost and Chris Bosch. You know, and these are PWG names from the past, but they were really, really talented wrestlers. Yeah, we loved that. Um, they used to watch his stuff. We loved, we loved Scott Lost especially. Big fan of Scott Lost. Scott Lost was really good. He was very explosive. Um, and just like a good athlete, too. Nice guy. Um, he's an illustrator now. He's a comic book illustrator. Uh, who else did we wrestle there? That might, that, there's probably more. I can't quite remember um man the young bucks we wrestled too but like i think we may have been iwgp junior heavyweight tag champs at that point um we did wrestle in canada i remember we wrestled ultimo dragon and his top student okada at that point in time so that was the first time i had met okada and that was in 2000 oh man 2006 um so he was quite young but yeah that was the first time i met him and it's kind of where our friendship started too and we had a handful of matches against like there as well against like uh ring crew express if you remember those guys um a couple more teams too but yeah that's about it well you talk about kind of the young bucks again um looking at the the stuff we're probably jumping jump in ahead quite a bit here but like looking at the stuff that you guys did with them in tna and then again that match you kind of took seemingly loads of places, like it kind of defined and kind of changed what my generation perceived as tag team wrestling. Do you kind of like look back? How when you look back on that, do you kind of look at it now and say, "Oh yeah, we were kind of changing what things, what people were doing in the U.S." And did you kind of know that you were doing that at the time? Did you, or was it just something that you were just kind of okay? We're going to have this match, and now that was pretty good but you didn't realize the kind of like the stones that you were turning and kind of the wheels were turning for the next generation. Oh, definitely not aware of it. And it's still not, to be honest with you. Like I still don't, when, when people say things like that to me, it's like, Oh wow. Really? You know, I don't, I don't quite, um, I, I just don't think that way. I don't, I don't want to say that like, I, I don't, respect my accomplishments but like at the same time i don't think of them in that regard i don't ever think about myself as being any more important or any less important than anybody else um maybe that's a medicinal practice in me you know maybe that's a clinician like i i just don't think of it in those terms so what i do think of though is the fact that basically the bucks to me nickel and matt are like my greatest opponents and they're such a good fit for me in terms of like competitiveness and 
athletic ability and just they push me and I push them, I think, um, to the point where like we did it with the guns against the box. And then we did it with the time splitters and the box too. And it's not as much a, I'm trying to think of how I can word this. We didn't try to reinvent the game. We tried to play chess. We tried to figure out where the puzzle pieces fit the best. And everybody was trying to figure out the best fit. Everybody was trying to figure out the next move. Um, in that regard, a lot of the things that I know the guns used and the bucks used are very old school. Like they're updated versions of that. And I'll give you a quick diatribe here. Um, Jim Cornette was working in TNA when the machine guns actually got assembled in TNA. TNA did not want to use the motorcycle machine guns. Let that go on the record. Um, they very much like Chris Saban as like a singles wrestler. And they very much like Alex Shelley is whatever Alex Shelley was. And it just so happened that the stars aligned and finally people gave us a chance and, and it went well enough. Um, but we had to like fight for that. And I remember the very first time we actually did anything resembling teamwork in TNA. It was actually a, uh, either a five way or a six way exhibition match. I think it was a five way and it was in a cage and it was Alex Shelley versus Chris Haven versus Jay Lethal versus Sanjay versus Shark Boy. Um, maybe somebody else was in there too. And that was when we decided, well, you know what? We're going to use tag team matches to control this and, or tag team moves to control this match. And we did. And it worked very well to the point where people thought, oh, wow, you guys are going to be a tag team. Well, no, not necessarily. But as we showed more and more chemistry to people, because by that point we had been teaming for quite a while, we wanted to team, they got it. And the person who got it the most was Jim Cornette. And I know his name doesn't resonate well with a lot of fans or wrestlers today, but he was always kind to me um, in the sense that he was encouraging of a young tag team. And he gave us this packet. I still have it somewhere. It was this packet, this Midnight Express packet with like seven DVDs and all these liner notes of what, to look for in the match and what it drew and where it was and when it was, who it was against. And he goes, you guys should study this and then come back to me every week and discuss certain elements of it. And then I can explain it to you further. And he kind of let us in on these secrets of tag team wrestling. And this was in 2008. And I feel like eventually working with the young bucks, they picked up on a lot of this stuff too, and then adopted it and changed it in their own right. So a lot of it is updated versions of the same thing. And it's the same tricks that worked 20, 30 years ago. It's just modified to do what it's designed to do, but within the reality of like what we do on top of it too. So like as much as I would love to see Bobby Eaton and Sam Lane versus Hidaka and Fujita, that's not going to happen. And the closest thing you're going to get to it was a motor shooting machine guns, so on and so forth. And I think that's kind of where the style and the influence came from in a lot of ways. It's not, I don't, I don't ever consider that it's our style, but it's just kind of drawn off of all these different things that would have never happened. Like you would never see that match. Would you like, you would never see a Japanese junior heavyweight tag team against a rock and roll express, but you kind of got that because of where we came from and who our mentors were, you know, wrestling small in that way. Did you say you still have the pocket somewhere? 
I sure as shit do, man. I sure as shit do. I know I have the DVDs. I'd have to look for the actual, like, liner notes. But, yeah, I do have it somewhere. Yep. Yep. S- send them my way, man. I'd love to kind of, like, again, I'd be able to track those matches down now with the internet. I'd love to kind of see what stuff he was telling you to look out for because that'd be, that'd be some great knowledge to uh, get my hands on. It's really, really, really cool. Like, I'm, I'm, I'm 99% sure I have it. And it's just – and, again, keep in mind, too, that, like, I can give you the information. I can give you the notes. But, like, at the same time, he was there to actually explain it. Like, he was the third member of the Midnight Express. So, like, he would sit there and, like, show us, like, and explain every single nuance of it. Like, well, here's why we did it. Here's how we did it. Here's how I would orchestrate it. Here's how it was structured uh, before the match. Here's what they reflected on after. So, it was, like, it was emphasized and maximized by his input. You know, because he is a genius when it comes to tag team wrestling and, and wrestling in a lot of ways, really. Yeah, again, I've listened to, again, I know you said he, and he does uh, split opinions and stuff again. Again, I can under, 100% understand completely why people don't don't like him. I do. But, like, again, I listened to some of his reviews, and I know that he is a big fan, a big fan of you guys because he has spoke quite highly of you guys. And, again, I guess it's because he sees a, a lot of what you do in, in what him and the boys were pulling off back in the day. Yeah, I think so. And like, I, you know, we had like a lot of, like, I was lucky, you know, like that was one of the guys who mentored me. I've had a lot of really eclectic mentors over the years, man. Now, granted, he did it for a limited amount of time, but like, who else are you going to get in the business? I feel this is where I feel very fortunate to be able to verbalize this. Like my mentors have been uh, Kevin Nash, Mick Foley, Sting, Jim Cornette, Ikido Hidaka, Spanky, uh, Yuji Nagata. Like, who else is going to have that? Who else can say that? Robbie Brookside, you know? So it's like, I, I was really, really, truly very fortunate um, to look back on it, to be in the right spot at the right time in a lot of different genres. Um, so like, I've really been able to soak up a lot of knowledge from all these different guys who have done all these incredible things. Well, you talk about like, we've got, we've got to talk about Nash really, haven't we? Like, again, you use that, like if people use the term that he, he coined and i'm not using this to describe you i'm not but he coined the term vanilla midget which again him saying the guy is smaller in the industry and who were more technical which again if you were to kind of sum up what they say that is you were a smaller guy in the industry you were more of a technical style yet he absolutely loved you so like kind of what was working with kevin like right so i think when he was first brought into tna to work with me or me with him or however you would like to word that. Um, I was uh, somewhat apprehensive because I, first of all, he's, you're intimidated by these guys that you grew up watching to a point, like at least when you first interact with them, you know, it's he's like one of those monster, things where he's, like, he's a monster. Sorry, cut you off. He's a monster as well. Absolutely massive. One of the biggest guys I've ever met. Absolutely. I mean, he's super shredder for Christ's sakes, you know? It, so like, you've got that happening on top of the fact that like, I remember when I first met uh, Shinjiro Otani, who's not a huge man. He seems so big. But that's because, like, my senses were hyperactive. You know, we actually view these things as larger than life. That's a phrase for a reason, because um, we're aroused, quote-unquote. Like, we're on edge, um, not necessarily in a bad way, but we're just very aware of what it is. So it's like that nervous excitement. So I remember I had met him previously in 2004 in TNA. Um and then uh, in 2006, he came back and he was going to 
be involved with the exhibition. And what we did was initially we were just sat in a room together and it was going to be me interviewing him. I don't think he counted on the fact that, again, we were going to be able to communicate, but that I was going to be able to make him laugh, which I did. And he made me laugh a lot. And we ended up having really, really good chemistry just as human beings, which isn't that surprising because we're literally from like the same hometown, more or less, like a suburb of Detroit, right? So like he's a Detroit guy and I'm a Detroit guy. And there's like a certain type of culture in the U.S., which you've probably been able to experience by now. But like if you don't if you go to Los Angeles, the people are very different than the people in Florida, than the people in New Jersey, than the people in Detroit so on and so forth. Have you noticed that by now, I imagine? Yeah, I have. And there's a, uh, I, there's a, a famous song called, oh, um, I'm trying to think. It's, um, I can't even think of it. It's, is it called The Class of 1984 something? I, I'm, I'm probably wrong here, but uh, the one of the lines in it is, uh, you should live in, you should live in California once, but don't stay long, uh, too long. That it makes you soft. Everyone should live in New York at least once, but they shouldn't stay there so long that it makes them hard. And I think that sums it up completely. Like Again, depending on where you are from, you can kind of gauge what the sort of person really is and how they've had to kind of adapt to life from them areas. That's right. And, you know, you look at it from a land standpoint and, uh, you know, like the U.S. Is, is, is massive in terms of most countries in the world. It really is. So, like, for example, Michigan, my home state, is about the size of England. And when you really compare it that way, like California is about the size of Japan, things like that. Um, it's not surprising that every geographic region has its own culture and sense of humor, language, uh turn a phrase, all those types of things. So Nash and I ended up hitting it off really well, really, really, really well. And I think to answer your question about the vanilla midget, it wasn't, he's not opposed to guys who are good technical wrestlers who are smaller. Like that's not, I, I, I don't, and first of all, I don't know that he's actually said that phrase. I've never heard him say it, but I don't know that that was his issue. Um, in fact, I think this is actually quite telling, but he told me in 1997 when WCW brought Ultimo Dragon in that him and Scott Hall were watching his debut against Rey Mysterio Jr. And they flat out said, I think that this is the greatest wrestler we've ever seen. Like Ultimo Dragon is the best wrestler they had ever seen up to that point. Like better than Sean, better than X-Pac, I, I believe is what he told me at the time too. Like, cause he was that incredible, right? But he's a smaller guy, very technically savvy too, and a good high flyer. And he was just something brand new. So it's not like he's adverse to smaller wrestlers. I think what it is, is the smaller wrestlers who um, potentially could lack a certain pizzazz or a certain charisma or uh, believe it to be all about pure mechanical wrestling ability versus the entire package. Does that make sense? The way I'm wording it. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Yeah. It's like them. The, I guess it, you come down to the, he's looking at the guys who are smaller and using the term vanilla as in there's not a lot of flavor there. There's not nothing I can sink my teeth into. It's just, just the wrestling. Just wrestling, yep, yep. And I think that's what it was, because certainly if it was a height issue, like, everybody's shorter than he is. So I, I, I truly believe it was more so the guys who, like, uh, couldn't 
find a sort of moxie about it all at that point in time too. And that's, to be fair, that's like true in most sports, you know, like you look at these guys who are kind of just like you're, Oh, Joe public, like very stoic little charisma. And they're not the superstars. They just aren't. No, I, again, I couldn't, I couldn't agree more. I, I remember somebody kind of saying once, and I, 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 he say, I can't remember who said it, but he was trying to put it across as in like how people look as in, uh, the size of the stature of them. And he said that somebody once said to him that a wrestler should turn their heads when they walk through the airports. Uh, people should turn to look at them. And when I, again, when I first started out, I thought to myself, like, oh, that it must be look like a monster. But then the more I kind of learned about wrestling was, well, if you were to kind of take a wrestler, even myself, I'm not, again, you saw me at the airport, I wouldn't, I wouldn't turn your head or whatever. But I like to think if you put me in my full wrestling attire and I walk through an airport, people would probably turn and go, what is, what is he wearing? Why is he wearing a full three-piece suit? And he's about to get on a plane. So it's, again, it's taking that extra little bit and going, okay, if I'm not a monster, how to make myself stand out in the ring. No doubt. And I, I would say that's why you are you. Like, that's why you have the level of success you've had is because you think outside the box, too. And very much so, like, I had to think about the same types of things, too. And to be fair, like, nowadays, too, like, People will look twice at you. You don't have to look necessarily like anything uh, extra spatial, per se, right? Like, you don't have to look like a freak or a monster, but you have to look like something. You just have to look like something. There's got to be something about you. And those typically make the best wrestlers. So, like, of course, we've all seen wrestlers who are phenomenal, but their look is what it is. You have to be different. And when guys come to me for advice about their look, it's like, well, I always preface it with this. Who are your favorite wrestlers? Like, what brought you into wrestling? And when they tell me certain things, it's like, well, have you ever considered incorporating some of those elements into, like, what you look like? Like, if you thought that looked cool when you were a kid, don't you think that would apply now? Oh, but I can't do that. Well, why can't you? Like, you can do anything you want. Like, this is absolutely limitless in terms of how you do anything. So it's really, truly up to you in terms of how you make your presentation felt. But there's a million ways to go about it and still look like something. When we kind of look at the, the landscape now, and you talk about kind of people coming up to you and, you know, asking for advice and stuff like that. There was a period, of course, uh, for about two to three years where you wasn't around. How come the the retirement came about? Oh, so... More or less, uh, what had happened was in, it would have been July 2018, um, yeah, I just could not continue wrestling. My contract was up at Ring of Honor, and I was going to finish up my medical program at school. So every medical program, at some point in time, you're going to have to do clinical rotations. And depending on what your discipline is, like obviously a surgeon is going to go into residency while being a physio. I didn't have to do that, but I did have to work at a number of different clinics. And I had actually done a little bit of the residency for about uh, four months, five months at that point, and still wrestled. And it was incredibly stressful. So uh, when the contract came up, I was totally content just finishing up um, my clinical rotations and working in the different clinics and hospital settings for quite a while and then taking my boards. Like, there was no way... No way I was going to be able to wrestle on the weekends anywhere. 
and go into a hospital setting and work 40, 50, 60 hours a week. It just wasn't going to happen. So, yeah, I had to finish it out because at that point I was at the end of a four-year program and, you know, like you got to um, – step back from it but it was hard like I, I thought it would be easy it was not it was it was it was a uh, more difficult than i thought it would be no doubt about it did you when you said like retirement did you kind of did you mean it did you think to yourself okay this is me done with wrestling i'm i'm gonna put a stopper on this we are done or was it a uh, i might come back to this in a bit i was very 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 careful to never say retired i made sure to never say that and then, you know you hear about like pro wrestlers retiring quote unquote and to me retiring is like no man you, when you retire like you get benefits of a pension and nobody's getting that in wrestling um i wasn't sure i was gonna come back like i really thought i was i i really thought i was and then the more i got away from it i was like i don't that I'm going to have to. And I think for me, uh, to share a little bit of personal information too, I was married at the time and my uh, ex-wife was um, a veterinarian. She was an ER vet. And uh, eventually the stressors of medicine on both ends, like clinical rotations are not an easy thing to go through. You talk to anybody in the medical field. And being an ER vet who does mostly euthanasias is not easy to go through. So we ended up dissolving our marriage, which is fine. Like there wasn't any sort of hostility or animosity um, over cheating or lying or stealing or drugs or alcohol or anything like that. Like nobody got abused. Um, but I really thought like, the next step in life was going to be, okay, wrestling will be on the back burner and I'll have this career now and maybe I'll have kids and it'll be a more nuclear lifestyle. And obviously that didn't happen and I'm glad it didn't happen. Um, but I wasn't totally sure to answer your question. I mean, I really, I told myself, yeah, I can always come back. I can come back. And then it got to the point where I don't think I want to come back. I think I just want to do this. And it would just waffle back and forth for a period of time. Well, of course, we now know that you did come back. So, like, but you were gone again. You were gone for a good, a good amount of time. And again, you must have kind of, as you said, talked yourself out of it and said, "Okay, I'm not going to come back. I'm not going to come back." But so, what changed? Why the why the return? Why now? Um, you know what I think happened was like on top of, I finished my clinicals right, and I, I got through that, and that was really hard, and. Uh, my marriage ended and I got through a divorce and I was like starting all these new things in life too. And I had to ask myself, like, as we mentioned before, like what's next? Like, what do you do next? And I wasn't happy with how I left um, per se. Like I, I felt like I had more to offer, more to do. And I knew at that point Saban was injured, right? He had tore up his ACL again. So he's out. Kushi's in NXT, so he's offsides. And if I come back, it's going to be just me. It's going to be just me relying on myself. Because when you're in a tag team, you can count on your partner for quite a bit. Um, in real life as well as in the ring. And I think you probably know that. It's something new and different. And, okay, like now I've got nobody else to count on but myself in this situation. I kind of felt that way in life too. Um, Cause I passed my boards. I had gotten through school and 
I thought, okay, I'm, I'm going to do this. Like the environment had changed so radically within one year, like things had gone just so sideways in terms of like where people were and what was open, what was available, what the matches were going to be. Um, that I felt like I almost do better when I have the obstacles in front of me. Like I had to work at that. I had to prove myself over and over again um, to kind of get that traction and get that momentum. And I had to reinvent myself and think differently because as you know, when you're in a singles match versus a tag team match, it's an entirely different ball game. And I kind of welcomed the challenge and obviously I did pretty well with it, I think. So, so what's next then for Alex Shelley? Where do you, what do you want to do next? You know, it's tough to say. Like, obviously, things are upside down for a lot of people. Um, I am very much enjoying... I told myself when I came back that I was only going to do things that interested me creatively. And I'm in a unique position because I'm one of the guys who, like, I love wrestling dearly and I work so hard at it. But I've got this career outside wrestling, too, and I don't have to have wrestling. I choose to be a part of it, and that's how I know I love it, because I wanted to come back for that reason. And I don't necessarily have to go anywhere or have to do anything. Um, so I can take the things that are like most fulfilling to me or the most exciting or the sexiest or the coolest or whatever I think that might be. Um, but, you know, if you had asked me this question, like, two months ago, even like I had all these dates lined up, like, you know, as wrestlers, especially um, guys who work on the independence, like you agree to these dates, like sometimes six and eight months out. And I refuse to ever um, cancel something because of something else that popped up. Like if I say I'm going to be there and even if it's four or five months down the line, I got to do it. You know, word is bond. Like that's just good business. That's the right thing to do. Um, so I don't know, like, I don't know what's next anymore. And I guess I have to wait and see how everything falls. Like, cause the entire deck of cards is just thrown up in the air and reshuffled now. Um, whereas before I may have been able to give you like a more, at least like thought out answer. I, I really truly have no idea at this point anymore. Um, but again, I've got a sort of immunity because I don't have to rely on wrestling. So I, I can pick and choose like what happens next for me, at least, or at least as far as like, if I get three options, I don't have to take a B or C. I can kind of um, weigh it all out, but yeah, it's an exciting time for a lot of reasons. Like sometimes the wrong reasons right now, I think, because I, you know, far be it for me to glorify a period of time where a lot of people are losing their jobs or a lot of people are scared. A lot of people are very anxious. A lot of people are depressed. A lot of people are sick. Um, I don't mean to look at it that way, but, um, for me personally, you know, it's been a nice time to recharge and refocus and kind of think about what I want. And I, I have really thought about like, in terms of dividing physical therapy and wrestling, do I want to go back to wrestling full time? And I think the answer is yes, I do. I, I do. I have decided on that much. I have realized that like, there's a finite amount of time to do the things I want to do. We could all die tomorrow. Um, not to sound morbid or anything, but you get in a car accident or you could have an aneurysm. Like, it, you don't know. So I have been able to see everything happen and think, man, you know what? Like, I miss wrestling. I miss it a lot. Like, I have a lot left to give there. So I do want to go back to it. Man, that was so, like, blasé. We were just, like, you were just talking, like, yeah, and, like, do I want to go back to being full-time professional wrestler? And I was expe- I was kind of expecting you to just go, 
yeah, you don't know, I'm, you know, I'm okay, just balancing it. Be like, no, I do, I definitely do. And I'm literally just here, and the little, like, 14-year-old Alex Shelley fan in me has just gone, yes, Alex Shelley full-time, let's do this. There's just, like, so many guys out there who are so good and so many, like, cool things left to do. Um, and, you know, like, going to NXT was, was very beneficial in that regard. Coaching in October at the PC was very beneficial in that regard. Being in Ring of Honor and wrestling all these new guys, you know? Like, I, I got to have my first singles match with Mark Haskins um, a couple months ago. I got to wrestle Ray Horace and Dan Moff, Dan Moff, who I'd known since I was, like, 19. You know, there's, like, just so many things out there to do. Like, I literally wish I could make clones of myself and just send the clones out everywhere to do everything at once. But um, I know that I'll regret the time I spend... Um, not doing those things more if I if I don't try to do new things. And when I came back, I decided whatever's presented to me, I'm going to do the opposite of what I would have probably done a couple of years ago, which was take a very safe and contained route because I was in school. So I'm going to try all the new things. And that's kind of like really what I want to do. That's that's sick. So uh, how I usually like to round these up then is if we could like, if we could take you now with all the knowledge that you have and you could go back in time and give your younger self advice. What would it be? Oh, man. You know what? Um, actually, really, truly, I think if I had to give my younger self advice, I would probably do what you had mentioned earlier. I probably would have tried to enjoy things like as they were happening um, rather than being so focused on the next step, which for me, you know, I've got two four-year degrees at this point. I was always so concerned about like an exit strategy from wrestling, a contingency plan, that a lot of times I was preoccupied by that rather than thinking like, wow, this is so incredible. In wrestling, there's so many people that you just don't get to say goodbye to. And if I could go back and just really, really focus on like being present with them and kind of expressing how much I love them um, from time to time, I think that's probably what I would have done. That's, that's, that's fantastic, really is. So uh, where can people find you on the internet? Honestly, the only thing I had, no, I do have an Instagram now. I set up an Instagram. I've just been real bad about using it. Um, but that's taste the diff. So taste like taste food, D T H E diff B I F F. And then, um, my Twitter handle, which God, I feel like I should have changed it. Cause once I saw WWE, like using at fake Kincaid, I was like, Oh, this is embarrassing. Um, but now it's too late. Now I'm just kind of, stand by it because i'm stubborn i suppose but at fake and kate on twitter those are my two things eh? that's uh that's brilliant uh alex it really has been an absolute blast um i've really really enjoyed this and i'm glad that we finally got to uh a i'm finally glad i got to meet you uh this year before all this kind of started happening and i'm really uh i'm really glad we got to finally sit down and have a chat as well oh flash it's been a pleasure man so hopefully time splitters versus you and manders sometimes eh? Let's do it. This uh, I'll get I'll get Regal on the phone and see if we can uh, we can get this sorted. Oh, I know Kush, you would love it. Fantastic! Right, thanks, Smith. Thank you, dude. How wonderful was that? As I said, a really easy podcast and a real cool retrospect of everything he's done. I guess. He's had such a long career, there probably is moments in there throughout that people are going to say, you miss this, you miss that. But without it end up being like a two-hour, three-hour chat, it really is difficult, especially when he's had a career that spans 20 years. Uh, but I think we really did hit the major points on the head. I love talking to him about, you know, the uh, 
Generation Next stuff because again, as I said to you, that's something that was really a big part of my of my childhood myself and like the Wobble Mike Hitchman kind of like create our own little faction in the backyard that was called like the Next Generation and stuff like that. And um, you know, now being a tag team wrestler myself, I kind of look to uh, Motor City Machine Guns and kind of use their style and their size as inspiration for myself and for Mark Andrews and subculture in general. And I, I thought it was really interesting when he was saying that kind of like, I know that a lot of people, a lot of people don't like Jim Cornette. I'm one of the people, a lot of, like the 99.9% of the stuff he says is absolutely awful. And, but you really can't, when it comes to wrestling, the man does know his stuff. And it's really interesting to see that he had a real, he had a real impact on the Motor City Machine Guns. And I really am going to chase up Alex about getting my hands on those matches that he said uh, he, that he told them to watch. And then hopefully I can grab some of the notes as well, because that'd be so interesting to listen to. But yeah, loved, loved listening to all the stuff in Japan was great. Uh, him just kind of talking about kind of coming away from wrestling and, deter, uh, you know, deciding to move away and why he decided to move away. Because a lot of people, I guess, don't, didn't know that either. And uh um, I love the little bit of the exclusive at the end. Kind of got a little bit of goosebumps when he said that uh, that he's definitely going to come back to full time wrestling. And I was like, oh, wasn't expecting. That. I was expecting him to just kind of say like, you know, you know, life's moved on, all this stuff. But for him to just say, I know I've realised I definitely want to be a full time wrestler again. I was like, yes, yes, Alex Shelley, yes, back in the picture. So yeah, really, really excited to see what happens uh, when this all cleared up in the next year or two for for Alex Shelley. And I really hope that uh, in maybe like two or three years' time I can get Alex back on the podcast so we can talk about all the cool stuff he's done since he decided to venture back into being a full-time professional wrestler because it really is really exciting right now. There's so many options, as he said. Really, really great. And again, really, really excited. Um, so yeah, big thanks to Alex for coming on the show and big thanks for everyone for listening. Really, really, really enjoyed that. Really enjoyed I thought it was a really great episode. Uh, of course, if you have enjoyed the podcast, please be sure to rate, subscribe, review. As I said at the start of the podcast, if you are, um, if you do review on iTunes for the next four weeks, next month or whatever, uh, you'll be entered automatically into a prize draw. So um, please, uh, if possible, when you do that, please uh, leave your, your your real name or whatever on the on the review, and that way then it makes or maybe your Twitter handle or something on the review so it makes it a lot easier for me to track you guys down and uh give you a prize if you win so yeah please be sure to do that rate subscribe review on itunes or on soundcloud stitcher podcast addict or wherever you're getting your podcast from please be sure to do all that it's a lot harder to track down with all them but again i really do appreciate it of course if you have enjoyed this week's episode please be sure to uh, retweet this on on twitter be sure to you know quote tweet it tweet it out tell everybody how much you enjoyed it and of course that twitter is at flash underscore morgan um please love seeing those instagram stories as well tell me that you you know on your runs or you're on your walks and you listen to my podcast i uh, love seeing that so please again that's at flash morgan webster on the instagram if you're uh, on facebook and this is where you get it from again great please share it out uh, at facebook.com forward slash flash morgan webster and uh, again we're on youtube now chucking all these on youtube so again please comment comment section give us uh, a thumbs up uh share that about again um uh, again just search flash morgan webster and look up channels and you'll find me on there got some new cool uh podcast art i got some new cool youtube art as well uh big thanks to fight studio that sort me all with all that um so yeah trying to really trying to revamp this and make it look as cool as possible especially now we've done over 100 episodes quite mix it up change it up a little bit but yeah all that's great and of course if you want to send me a little discreet email maybe you want to sponsor the podcast maybe you just want to you know, want me on the podcast, any of those stuff, then again, all that can be done at the email, which is flashmorgan at live.co.uk. Yeah, that's, that's it. 
Um, I've got some more podcasts lined up. I've got one recorded already. I might drop that one next week. Might, again, push out a little bit then. I've started sending out loads of messages. Some people have come back. Some very excited people have come back. Um, some people I'm waiting on. Some people said yes. Um, some people said, give me a couple of weeks. Some people said, uh, well, nobody said no, to be fair. It's quite lucky. But yeah, I've got some really exciting ones that have said yes. I'm trying to sort those out. Um, I feel like I put off doing Skype ones for ages because I always want to sit down and do it in person. And I feel that the moment you try to say to people, especially now, I guess, because everyone's locked down or whatever, but I'm, I'm guessing, I'm saying to people, let's do Skype. And Skype's so much easier. I can literally do, from the comfort of my house, I can easily do like five or six episodes in a day. So I can literally set myself up for a whole month in a day. So I'm just going to continue to do this. Even when even when lockdown's over, this podcast is staying. Absolutely staying. There's the exclusive from me. Staying, staying, staying. Wrestling friends forever. Mwah. But yeah, big thanks for everyone who's listening to the show. If you were, if you come just for Alex Shirley, please stay. Go through the back catalogue. Have a look. If you came for Edge last week and you're still here, thanks. Really do appreciate it. If you're brand new to podcasts in general, again, go back and listen to some cool stuff. Got Pete Dunn. Got Tyler Bate. Got Tony Storm. Got Ginny. Got Mike Quackenbush. Got Mick Foley. Absolutely crazy. Go through it. Edge. Everyone. Yeah, mental. But yeah, big thanks for everyone for listening. Um, as always, stay safe. Um... Go out for your walks, try to keep try to keep yourself active, try to keep yourself mentally strong, and hopefully this will be over sooner rather than later. Uh, big thanks for everyone listening. I've been Flashmonger Webb, so this has been Wrestling Friends, and it's always a pleasure, always a treasure. And bye. Thanks for stopping by. Stay safe, people. <laughs>